You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Deviant with Fertility Docs Uncensored. Um, I'm at the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my staggeringly, sensationally splendid co-host, Dr. Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Thank you, Carrie. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Very nice, Carrie. I feel so much more important now. <laughs> you should. You are I mean, important. You were just asked to give a keynote at, is it your... It's my sorority group? alumni group. So apparently, and this hasn't been a routine thing, but they, last year we had a group of people that gathered and this year is the 66th anniversary of the sorority being on our campus. And so I actually was not planning to go. I went last year. And so I was already putting myself on call that weekend and I just got an email, which was really nice. And they were very nice to ask me to do it, but they asked me to be the the keynote speaker. And when you put that word keynote there, it makes me a lot more nervous than if it was just, could you speak, you know? And so, um, so anyway, so I'm trying to like contemplate what I want to talk about. And they, and the, the only thing they said is it just needs to be inspiring. And so I thought maybe you guys could help me come up with some inspiring topic to talk about or topics. So this is the... You said 66th anniversary of it being on your guys' campus. Yes. Yeah, so it'll be like sorority girls all the way up to 60-something-year-olds, I'm guessing. So a wider range of women in the group. Fertility preservation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that would be a good thing. We I might get some, some you know, people listening to our podcast, you know, with, with that. But I probably need to, like, talk about something a little bit more encompassing for, like, the whole group, though. <laughs> So I think you should do, and granted, this is heavily influenced by me just having a big birthday, but I think you should talk about the delightful FU factor that comes with age. Oh, there you go. Of women who are in college, who are, even when they're confident and smart and have it all together, Yeah, there, there is a difference. Like when I think about my 20th birthday, my 30th birthday, and my Mm -hmm. 40th birthday, like the filter has come off. (laughs) Did you ever really have that much of a filter carry? Was the filter there for you? Oh, totally. Oh, yes. And I am like, I am still so filtered. Y'all have no idea. (laughs) We see a different side of you, Carrie. Is that what you're saying? uh, No, I'm saying you see one of the more more unfiltered sides of me like okay good my husband and my my girlfriends who are here in town who uh, <laughs> have more relaxed exposure rather than with a microphone right in front of me see yeah. an even more unfiltered like you put two glasses of wine in me and the filter there's no off. filter there is no filter um so like you guys are kind Personally of love the completely unfiltered Carrie. So I just want to let you yeah, know that. I, I love, I love Carrie the way I know Carrie. So I wait till we have the next uh, meeting together where <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, 
it will come out more and more the longer I know you. Um, but I think I think you should talk about how how things change throughout the years and maybe how supportive that group of women is in developing the what will ultimately become the unfiltered version of all these women who go through it. Oh, I like it. Good thoughts. Good thoughts. I, I'm kind of I, I think this would fit right into kind of what I was sort of <clears throat> thinking is like life lessons that I've learned, some good ones and some bad ones, some funny ones. And um, just recently, unfortunately, lost really close friends that um, that I knew from the sorority. And so one of those life lessons is, you know, reach out to your friends, old and new, because, you know, you don't know when they're not going to be around anymore. So, um, but yeah, I could fit that right into like, you know, one of the life lessons I've learned as I've gotten older, what I thought mattered in my 20s probably really doesn't matter that much anymore. And I, and you should, you know, own that. (laughs) Definitely. I like that. Definitely. Very good. All right. So on a totally different note than empowering women as they age, let's talk about <laughs> poor quality swimmers and male fertility. <laughs> we got to do a and question though first. We, we do. We do. But the important thing is remember that 40% of all couples with infertility have some contributing male components. So even yeah. though we don't talk about it quite as much as we do all the lady parts, 40% of the time, yeah. Ladies tend to be a little more, bit more complicated. Um, you know, the swimmers are important and, you know, we, we, we need those swimmers to meet up with the eggs. So we want to make sure they have their, their due course in our podcast. <laughs> all right. So what questions do you have for us today, Susan? All right. So our first question is, I've heard y'all mention low sperm count, but what about motility and morphology? My husband has a normal high count, but the morphology and motility are low, as is his testosterone. How do these factors affect fertility and what are best options for overcoming them? That's a good one. That is a good one. So that leads right into what we're going to talk about. So should we just talk and then we can answer that question along the way? Let's do it. So what do you think about a normal sperm count, but low morphology and low motility? Well, I think that when you're looking at motility and count, looking at those numbers together really is what's important for for the most part. Because if you have a really high count and your motility is a little bit low, but the average number kind of between those two ends up still being a good enough number, that's what matters. Okay. I mean, we love to have more, more is better, but I I think that looking at those numbers in combination, morphology, uh, yeah. Okay. This is the way I feel about morphology and y'all can tell me what you think afterwards. So about every 10 years in my professional experience, there's talk about just getting rid of morphology as something right. on a semen analysis. Yeah. And the fact that we keep on revisiting this every 10 years pretty much says to me, it probably isn't as important as we all think <laughs> it is. And so it's something we pay attention to, but it's nothing that I would ever make a major decision on. Um. And so that that's kind of where I, I I fall into kind of the meaningfulness of those numbers. What do y'all What do y'all think? Well, I think with morphology, I mean, the thing about it, and we've talked about this before, it's it's sort of a subjective look at the sperm, like are they shaped correctly, the head too big, the tail too crooked, and what we really don't know is how clinically significant that is. 
you know, I tend to believe if I see somebody that has 0% normal morphology, I tend to kind of pay attention to that. But I'm like you, Susan, I wouldn't change and do something major. And by major, I mean, the only way that we can get the sperm closer to the egg or in the egg is to do IVF. I certainly would make a decision to do IVF, at least not immediately based on one morphology. Um, you know, we, we know that what happened three months ago with your partner may have made a difference with the morphology and maybe over time that might get better. Um, but I certainly would think it would be reasonable to try at least some office procedures like intrauterine insemination just to see if we could get the sperm closer to where it needed to be and really determine if the morphology really made a difference. And one last thing I'll say on morphology too, you know, if a guy is sitting in front of me and he has two or three kids and his morphology is bad, I'm not so worried about that. That tells me, that's my answer. That tells me his morphology really doesn't make a difference if he's had children before and that the sperm has been able to get where it needed to go. What do you think, Carrie? I mean, I think it all kind of plays in. There was a study that showed um, the more numbers of affected uh, kind of categories in a sperm analysis, the higher the likelihood that there was a male factor contributing. And so if you had somebody who had looking at their their motility, morphology, and concentration, if someone had just one thing off, that was a much lower percentage of male factor impact than if they had two or than if they had all three things off. And so that makes sense. Like, I think I kind of plays in to in yeah. that. I mean, I'm, I agree. I'm not going to make a make or break decision on, on no morphology. If I have someone who has zero, then I might say like, Hey, let's, let's talk about IVF so we can do ICSI. But, but even then, if the concentration of motility is really good, I'm not averse to doing a couple of IUIs because if it works fabulous and if it yeah. doesn't, then we go back to doing what we were going to do anyway. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I come down on it. And then as to things that we can do to affect either Motility or morphology. Stop smoking. All Stop of it. drinking excessively. Stop smoking marijuana specifically. <laughs> Stop putting your testicles in really hot water, like hot baths or hot um, spas or those types of things. There's not great data for it, but it does kind of seem like you're parboiling your your sperm, and that's probably not helpful. I don't care about you know a couple minutes here and there. Showers are fine, whatever. Don't stop bathing. Not good. Yeah. And also to that end, don't put your computer in your lap if you're a guy and work that can heat your testes or crazy things I've seen before too. I've seen a guy that was that was training for a triathlon. He was biking a bunch and the friction from biking heated up his testes. And you could just see over time his his count and motility just went. Oh. Yeah. And if you are excessively overweight, and I'm not talking about you have an extra 10 pounds. I'm talking yeah. about you have an extra hundred pounds. If you are excessively overweight, lose weight. Yeah, absolutely. Because that increases estrogen and, and those men tend to have lower lower ter- um, testosterone as well. Um, the other thing, kind of weird things out there, people that have exposure to chemicals and things I'm specifically thinking about is people who are like embalmers. They are, they're exposed to a lot of toxic chemicals. Um, people who work in dry cleaning, um, that sort of thing. Firefighters, chemicals can make a difference for guys as well. Mm-hmm. I've also seen some of uh, my military folks who are exposed to burn pits. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I've never seen any published data on it, but it just feels like I see that more often yeah. in those guys. Well, right. We know with women, too, if they're exposed to chemicals in the air, like some of our patients that are from different countries where there's really high exposure to things in the air, particular matter in the air, smog that that can have a difference for make a difference for women. I'm sure it can for men too. All right. What's our next question, Susan? Our next one is how does nicotine specifically in my situation with nicotine pouches that my male partner takes impacts the mobility of sperm? 
Mm, I mean, nicotine's probably not good for anybody. I think maybe a patch might be better than smoking because smoking exposes you and your partner to a lot of other chemicals. You know, I don't know that we really know that for sure. Think pouches. Aren't pouches like dip things? Oh, oh yeah, probably dip. Yeah. So you're you're patches. getting pretty intense nicotine levels when you're yeah. when you're essentially ingesting it sublingually. And, and so we know that nicotine does you know, impair the development of healthy sperm and it can make a big impact. And the nice thing, I mean, really the biggest amazing thing about male factor is you get new sperm every 72 days. So Mm -hmm. the things that we're talking about that you can change, yes, it can take a little time for it to have an impact, but you have the unique ability, much less than your potential female partner does to have make these lifestyle changes and have a significant impact on your fertility in three months from now. Yeah, most of the... Go ahead, Carrie. I was going to say there was a rat study that looked at just nicotine, not carcinogens, like you would find in an actual cigarette or dipping or whatever. Um, And just the straight nicotine exposure dropped both motility and um, count in in each of those. So, um, you know, I think that's... It's entirely possible that that will apply to male humans as well as male rats. Um, And so something to think about. So when somebody dips tobacco, they're exposed to nicotine. Are they exposed to other carcinogens in that? Or is it just mainly nicotine? I don't know. No, I think it's all the carcinogens that are in tobacco as well. Because it's it's the, it's not the isolated compound that you get. Yeah. Like in a nicotine patch. Yeah. Gotcha. It's, um, it's all the Still tobacco. Yeah. I, I just know when we send patients to your our fertility urologist, they're like, whatever your bad habit is, you need to stop. <laughs> so smoking, you know, eating too much, drinking too much, all those sorts of things. You know, it's only going to improve if most likely if you change your bad habits. Mm-hmm. Some of the data is kind of inconsistent when you do look at the the human studies, um, but it's convincing enough that it's probably not helping you. And if you think yeah. about it, the way that it's expunged from the body is through the male reproductive tract. Like your urine takes part of the same pathway that your sperm takes coming out. So any, any bad news that's left in there, the sperm are going to pick up on their way out. So, well, we know women that are smokers have higher risk of vulvar cancer and things like that for the same reason it's in their urine and it comes out on their vulva and they're chronically exposed to I mean, the number one reason for bladder cancer is nicotine exposure. Yeah. Yeah. So it can't be good for you. All right. What's next? Our next one. My husband and I have been trying for kids since July of 2021. And in February, we found out he has a very low sperm count. Both sperm samples were under 10. We've seen a urologist and he is having surgery done. I've had my IVF consultation. We will be um, beginning in summer of 2022. My husband is 26 and I am 25. My test results have come back normal. And I have 25 follicles on my left and 30 plus on my right. <laughs> if everybody was so like... Lots of eggs. Um, is there anything my like- husband and or I should be doing now to prepare for IVF? We, we've almost completely cut out alcohol, have been eating a healthy diet, but always looking for tips on how to set us up for the most successful IVF possible. I love your show and can't thank you enough for all the information you've shared. Sounds like they've already cut out a lot of the exposures that we worry about. Um, mm-hmm. There was one study that looked at uh, potential male supplementation that may have a positive impact. Things like vitamin C, vitamin E, CoQ10, L-carnitine, and N-acetylcysteine. Um, I think those are the ones that have the most generalized 
like taking a supplement and it might have an impact. And mm-hmm. you can go back and listen to some of our supplement episodes to hear the the pros and cons about supplements. But, um, you know, I doubt that that's going to hurt. And so I tell a lot of my guys to take it just because it's, it's cheap and it's easy. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt. At the worst, it's going to make expensive fee. And at the best, you're going to do, do something helpful for yourself. Um, so, so really getting rid of a lot of those exposures, like we talked about, getting sleep, eating healthy, um, those types of things are beneficial. One thing she mentioned is that they're going to do IVF. His count's been less than 10 million, but he's also going to have surgery. So I'm but he sure. said it's less than 10, not less 10 than million. 10. Okay. And he's going to have surgery. And I assume... I'm guessing they're doing a Tessie or micro Tessie. Okay. 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 Yeah. I was going to say, if he produced sperm, he probably wants to freeze some for backup. But if he only has 10 sperm, then probably microtessa, yeah, is what they're doing. Yeah. What's next? All right. Our next one. My husband had a vasectomy reversal last summer. They told us um, that day that it failed after it Aww. only being four years old. Um, after, uh, sorry, first of all, have you ever seen anyone get pregnant from the vast deference healing? Is that possible? Also, why is IVF the only option, not IUI, when he has viable sperm to do a TESA or PESA? That is a great question. People always ask that, or if they have sperm, husband has frozen sperm, like from cancer treatment a long time ago or something, and they come for fertility treatment, they don't realize that the sperm that's frozen is really a low low quantity. Although he may have several vials of sperm, you know, human reproduction tells us that there has to be a certain amount of sperm in order for it to happen the old fashioned way or to happen by doing IUI. And we've talked about this before, but with intrauterine insemination, you know, it's the numbers kind of vary, but you need somewhere around eight to 10 million total modal, meaning eight to 10 million moving sperm in order for it to make it worthwhile for you to have an intrauterine insemination done in the office. And even with that, if you had like three vials of sperm, basically your chances at best case scenario, if you're really young and healthy and have a good egg number, best case scenario, your chances would be maybe eight to 10% in the office if we do IUI. If your husband only has three vials of sperm that are frozen, then we don't want to waste one of those with only a 10% chance. Whereas if we do IVF and you get 10 or 15 eggs, you may make two or three genetically normal embryos and have a really high chance with each one of those embryos um, in terms of conception. So you know, if you had a bunch and bunch of vials of sperm and they were really good, maybe you might try IUI, but that's really rarely the case. Usually patients that have frozen sperm have to do um, IVF with ICSI. Very much Great. a numbers game um, and the extracted sperm counts just they're not high enough, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone who has been through a reversal with a spontaneous healing. Mm-hmm. Um, surgery, reversals, all those procedures generate scar tissue. And when they're trying to do a reversal, they're being very gentle with it in terms of trying to cut out the scar down portion and rejoin the tubules to open ends. But um, but of course, that's not always possible. And so... You only need one, though. You only need one. <laughs> Miracles do happen, but that's what it would be as a miracle. Yeah. Well, it sounds like if they were that quick... I mean, I've never... I don't know of a urologist that I remember ever saying immediately on the day of surgery it wasn't successful. If they're, if they're that... There must adamant, have been a lot of scarring. There must yeah. have been a lot of scar tissue and they just didn't get the tubes back together at all. I mean, it almost sounds like there wasn't enough good normal tubing to put it back together or something for them to say that on the day of surgery. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our next one, kind of still on the vasectomy um, kick here. This is my first round of IVF. We are 
on this journey because my husband had a vasectomy 15 years ago. He's 37 with two children, 33 and never been pregnant. All my tests came back normal. My husband completed a sperm, sperm aspiration first and the sperm was frozen prior to my egg retrieval. At my egg retrieval, they were able to get 18 mature eggs and they fertilized all the mature eggs and eight started to grow on day one. After the seven days, only two made it to blastocysts, but were rated AD and not viable for pregnancy. We were told bad sperm. Is this a normal side effect of a vasectomy? They used one of the eight vials of sperm. Should we use the rest of the sperm in a second round or should we look at a fresh retrieval and aspiration for IVF? Oh, that's hard. That's a hard question. I mean, that might be a question for the urologist, um, you know, and it depends a little bit on how bad the sperm looked. Something tells me it was good enough, though, for them to use it. They didn't have to thaw another vial. So there was sperm there that probably was modal. But um, if it was just really poor quality, you know, maybe maybe the other vials had poor quality, too, and there was no benefit to thawing more. But that might be a question for the urologist if it would be better to do another aspiration at some point. I do have to say, though, you know, I I think sometimes, I mean, I would be concerned that this is a situation where it's like, oh, it's post-vasectomy sperm. This is a sperm issue. And if you haven't had sperm exposure in prior relationships, you know, this also could be an undiagnosed egg issue mm-hmm. as a possibility. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we see this quite frequently in our um, same-sex female patients in that they come in, they think they're going to get pregnant right away using donor sperm. And, you know, after a few rounds, we end up turning to IVF. And it, it's because, you know, unfortunately, infertility in humans is is pretty common. And, and so, you know, I, I would I would be wanting to really make sure that you had a full evaluation of your ovarian reserve. I mean, obviously you have enough eggs, but quality and quantity are not always the same. The other thing that sometimes we see, and I see this with uh, a lot with my guys who have frozen sperm, because that's a heavy part of our practice, is that you can have somebody who has a pretty normal count going into the freeze, but when they thaw it, the freeze exposes that the sperm doesn't recover really well. Because normally you would expect, you know, a solid 50% of a frozen sample Mm -hmm. to be good once you thaw it. That means you're going to lose roughly 50% or so. And those are not hard numbers, but, you know, in general. And and I definitely have some guys where their numbers look great going into the freeze, and then we see them coming out of the freeze, and they're just consistently bad. And so the sperm just doesn't weather it quite as well. And so it may be one of those situations where a fresh sample is advantageous, um, because there is some inherent issue in the sperm that... Um, some sperm just don't like processing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They don't like having to swim through the mazes that we make them swim through. And so they just kind of say, screw you and go on vacation. <laughs> What all else right. Okay. Hi there. Love your podcast. Really appreciate all the help you ladies provide. I'm 36, husband 35, doing IVF because he has non-obstructive azospermia um, of unknown cause, normal karyotype, no Y chromosome deletion, not a cystic fibrosis carrier. She also has diminished ovarian reserve, though not primary reason for IVF is required. Husband had a testing in um, to, early 2022 froze three vials of sperm, just finished our first IVF cycle, antagonist protocol with 375 of folistem, 225 minipure, one mig of dexamethasone, 55 I use Omnitrope for the first eight days and added in Ganarelix starting on day seven, increased Ganarelix to twice a day on day 10 and did 10,000 IU pregnal trigger um, and threw in a second 10,000 IU pregnal the next day as well. Doctor retrieved three eggs also had a few other follicles that were not 
were, that were not mature at retrieval and all three eggs were matured but none of them fertilize. When I had my follow-up with the RE, she said the lab did not leave any notes regarding issues with egg quality. And she told me she suspects the sperm quality issues most likely contributed to zero fertilization. They had to do some sort of test to select living sperm since none of the sperm were moving yeah. when they thawed the vial. My question is, we have two vials of sperm left. If we do two more cycles of IVF and we still have low fertilization rates, should we do another testy to get more sperm? Or do you think we should consider moving on to donor sperm? I don't want to keep putting my husband through surgeries just to get more sperm that is low quality. For that, what that's worth, IVF round two, um, currently undergoing priming with testosterone patches for 14 days, and my doctor's going to put me on low-dose stem protocol, Clomid, Minipure, Omnitrope, Dexamethasone, Ganarelix. Thanks again for everything you do for women struggling with infertility. They're pulling out all the stops for those protocols. Yeah. Those are heavy duty doses. Mm -hmm. and, and to only get three eggs on that, it sounds like there's both egg and sperm issues here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and she's I mean, she's only 36, but, but to only get three eggs is concerning, mm -hmm. especially with that type of protocol where they're clearly paying attention. They are clearly pushing as hard as they can. Yeah. And... And then you throw the sperm component into it, which if they had to do a test to, to check viability, that means that the sample that they got was rough. This this might be one of those you want to do a fresh on yeah. the day of retrieval. Like I, I know logistically that's always hard because you have to have somebody yeah. else driving and everything like that. But I mean, both of you are going through so much that I do think probably a fresh would be a reasonable um, mm -hmm. intervention for the next cycle. I don't think yeah. I would, I, I don't think I would stimulate two more times. I would do a fresh with the next one. Yeah. Yeah. There's really not a lot that can be done with that number of eggs and the quality of the sperm and having to use pentoxifiline to make the sperm move. That's, that's rough. Yeah. All right. Let's do, let's do one or two more questions, depending on how long they are. And then we'll wrap it up. All right. This next one's kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about. What is the success rate for IVF using Tessie sperm? Is there any difference between the success of fresh versus frozen sperm? I love your show and it's been helpful to me throughout my process to educate myself on these important issues. Thank you for your time and guidance. So for fresh versus frozen, um, there was an abstract at ASRM last year that showed that frozen was actually better, um, which it, it was just an abstract. It wasn't a full, full study, but it was encouraging to see that mostly because it demonstrates that frozen sperm is not inferior to using fresh sperm. And mm -hmm. so it makes us feel a little bit better when we have to use frozen sperm because of number issues, because of travel issues, location, all, all of the various things that mm -hmm. contribute to somebody needing frozen sperm. So, so fresh versus frozen, I think is not necessarily inherently a problem when you freeze it. I think it's more related to the inherent quality of the sperm prior to the freeze. Um, if you've got really poor quality sperm, then freezing it may not be doing it any favors. Yeah. But I think the freezing process as a whole, uh, like we talked about a minute ago, I think it can expose some problems mm -hmm. that you didn't otherwise quite realize that they were there. But I don't know that the freezing process inherently is is problematic, particularly when you're doing ICSI and the lab can cherry pick the best looking sperm that pass both the beauty competition and the talent contest. Did she say why her husband had to have the procedure done in the first place? Like what was the background? Because wow. sometimes the reason for it can be part of the problem too. Right. I mean, you're much better off if it's due to an obstructive cause than a non-obstructive cause. Right. So that, that can have a... a some meaningful difference in prognosis as well. All right, let's do one more. 
Hi, Docs. First, just wanted to start off by saying thank you for how much you do. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now and I've listened so much about fertility. My husband and I planned our... Uh, to start our trying to conceive journey back in March of this year, but unfortunately was delayed to discovering a uterine polyp. I had surgery to remove the polyp, but couldn't um, hurt to get my husband a semen analysis done in the meantime. We just got his results and everything looks good except for morphology. His morphology came back as zero and round cells showed 25%. Is there, there a way he can improve his morphology so we can try to conceive naturally or would you suggest going straight to IVF? Thanks. What do you think, Gabby? Um, I'm still pondering. You answer this question first. <laughs> so looking at a high percentage of round cells, whenever you see round cells, the question is, are those immature spermatids or are they white blood cells? That's very important. So sometimes a sperm culture can be helpful in figuring that out. Um, the the data about that is kind of all over the place. Man, I've been on a study kick today. Um, you are, man. I'm, really impressed. I'm impressed with all these studies you're quoting, Carrie. I feel I feel. A- lost or left out, I guess I should say. <laughs> I, hey, we'll, we'll take it when I get it. I could not, I could not tell you the authors of any of these, but I know I read them all. <laughs> um, so with white blood cells, it actually doesn't necessarily have a negative impact on outcomes. Um, that said, we all treat it and we're all trying to optimize anything. And I would much rather you not be harboring some infection. And usually they're just really low, low grade epidemitis, prostatitis, like yeah. things. And so, you know, you take a week's worth of antibiotics and clear it up. But that's, that's one potential issue, making sure that the, um, the specimen is looked at in a lab that is used to andrology. There is a difference between your big commercial labs and your local IVF labs. Like, Absolutely. Our andrologists do this every day. day, every day. And yeah. if they have any questions, they're going to go over to the embryologist and say, what do you think? And so you've got in any given lab, multiple people who are very used to looking at this, whereas a big commercial lab might be an automated machine and there's not really an, a set of eyeballs that's experienced looking at it. So I would... But a lot, of, a lot of times we reflex it too. If there's that question, then we reflex it to culture. And lately I've had a lot of guys that have been had positive for kind of minor things and then positive for some kind of bad things that we and usually, our, actually, I just asked the fertility urologist about this, and he was saying that really he recommends treatment for at least three weeks just because it takes so long because it's an environment where the, the sperm really can't get exposed to the antibiotic easily. So, um, so it's, wow, you know, three weeks. I've always done two weeks because yeah, you know, the, the blood testes barrier is a lot like the blood brain barrier. And it does, yeah. it, it does take us more um, yeah. to, to fight those types of infections, but whew, three weeks. Yeah long time. Yeah. So, um, so certainly, you know, you want to get that checked out because that, you know, if there's an implement infection going on, obviously you want to know that. Mm-hmm. All right. It sounds good. So thank you um, so much for everyone who has joined us today, listening to all of our male fertility questions. Um, be sure to tune in next week for more and subscribe, leave us a review in Apple podcasts and iTunes. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, stop on by for Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all the places and say hello. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We also love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. 
This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.